Hi, and welcome back to the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This is episode 113, and today I have with me Dr. Julia Bone. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Julia Bone, did I get that right, Julia? Yes, you did. Well done. Hey. <laughs> so um, today we're going to talk about um, DEXA, mm-hmm. um, gold standard or gold plated, which is a title of NICT from a recent presentation that you gave at the uh, UK Sport and Exercise Nutrition Register's uh, recent meeting. Um, and uh, there's all sorts of stuff I want to get into to, uh, with you um, that I have discussed some of this with Professor Graham Close and also um, um, Professor Sean Arendt from Rutgers University. Um, we've got into some of these topics, but I haven't as yet had the pleasure of having someone who's dedicated as much time um, and effort as you have into this very, very topic that I want to get into. So um, before we, we, we sort of unpack all of this into our chat today, perhaps you could just help the listeners um, understand a bit more about you and, and, and what you're up to. Yeah, thanks, Laurent. Um, thanks for having me. So as you said, I'm Julia Bone. I currently actually work um, in Belfast at Sport Northern Ireland Sports Institute as a performance nutritionist and dietitian. Um, but before that, I was at the Australian Institute of Sport where I did my PhD looking at uh, the reliability and validity of protocols that we use to assess body composition, predominantly with DEXA, um, and then how that applies to our interpretation of rest and metabolic rate um, in athletes as well. So. Yeah, that was my background, sort of uh, started my PhD, building on the work that was done by Elise Nana, um, who did a lot of the earlier studies in terms of standardization and reliability and validity uh, with the DEXA and just seeing what other, I suppose, sources of errors that could, could encounter in an athlete population that we might need to consider um, when using DEXA as a research tool and also in practice as well. So... I think um, because my audience, the listeners here, are mostly either practitioners, sports scientists, um, you know, uh, dietitians, sport dietitians, researchers, um, even professors, um, you know, we're going to get into a topic that um, there, everyone, I'm going to make an assumption here, which is dangerous, obviously. Um, but my assumption is that everyone knows what DEXA is, but not everyone knows um, necessarily everything there is to know about DEXA. And more, more importantly, when we start to look at DEXA, not just as that thing that we see as a, um, a tool that was used in a research project, or it's not that thing that, that we see people, you know, in a medical setting, maybe getting um, an assessment of their, their bone health, for example. Um, but it is increasingly becoming a tool that is used to inform practice. Yeah. Um, and it's a tool that, that I'm fortunate in my practice in, in London, I get to have access to a DEXA. Um, and many of our listeners, one way or the other, on either side of that research to practice spectrum have had some um, experience of, of DEXA um, and um, the involvement of that in the papers that they're reading and the, um, the textbooks, et cetera, that we have access to. And in fact, it's such a big tool. Um, you quite rightly refer 
to um, you know what it's what it's mostly known as is as a gold standard. And this mm. is something that I want to get into um, because, as your title um, does infer, that there may be some questions there. Um, hence, your gold-plated analogy there. Yeah. Um, and I'm interested, as the the listeners know, that you know, evidence-based practice is really what I'm interested in. That's what my doctorate was in, um, focused on sport and exercise nutrition. And I'm constantly thinking about this question of what is evidence? Um, you know, there's quality of evidence that's discussed a lot in science. You know, we're constantly seeing this hierarchy of evidence, you know, where we sort of almost dismiss the value of case studies, um, whereas your randomized control studies, you know, meta-analyses are always at the top. And of course, there are certain ways in which we need to recognize and describe the quality of science, but that isn't necessarily going to be appropriate for um, the way we look at evidence for practice, which is obviously where we start thinking about contextualization of information, the use of tools to contextualize, um, such as DEXA. So rather than looking obviously at means and averages in tables and charts and software, we're trying to actually identify an individual's actual data points, their findings, their actual situation. But all too often with technology, particularly expensive bits of equipment, um, we make some assumptions, and, and that assumption is that it's accurate. It's, um, like you say, gold standard. And when you look at the body of knowledge that exists in sports science, strength conditioning, nutrition, mm -hmm. anything that's related to, well, primarily weight management, body composition, uh, and so on, where DEXs play a role, it, it, it's, it's played a huge, um, sort of like, a, uh, um, uh, like an anchor, a, a foundational role in where that body of knowledge has gone um, in terms of, of just how much we, we trust and rely on that and everything that's gone on beyond that. But when we start to question, is DEXA actually the uber accurate tool that we think it is. It's mind-blowing mind blowing when you think, well, hang on, then what about the rest of all that evidence? Um, and let alone, what about, what about that as a tool that's used for practice? So I know I sort of rambled on there, but I, I feel really, really strongly about this and, and the fact that, that our industry, whether it's from a practitioner perspective or from an academic perspective, is, is, is we're so into this gold standard idea. Mm -hmm. And as Prof Graham Close and Prof Sean Aaron, you know, they're both like, no, it isn't necessarily. So let's get into that. So let's start then with, you know, why, why did you feel that you wanted to spend a hell of a lot of your life researching <laughs> this topic? Um, what, what, what were the scenarios that led you down this path? And then we'll un unpack this into what you found. Yeah, I suppose, like, as you said, as not only practitioners, but also researchers, when we're looking at body composition, because um, it is such a tool of our trade, the assessment of it, with, in terms of effective monitoring growth or um, training interventions or trying to help us with assess energy requirements that we need a tool that is eased, easy to use, is accurate, minimal error. Um, and so, as I said, with my PhD, we was off the base of Lisa Nana's and they had established some best practice protocols from her work with regards to like the vector food and fluid and prior exercise on the same day of the DEXA scan. But 
I think a lot of the time, sometimes the research just comes from your own daily practice and what you've observed. So we were still seeing changes in, in lean mass that we couldn't really explain that much in some athletes. And then when we would start to try and look at it a bit more systematically, okay, what has an athlete done maybe the day before or the day after? Have they come from a long haul flight? Have they had a rest day? What did they do the previous time they were having a DEXA scan? Did they come from a hard training day instead of a rest day? And trying to think of, okay, what are the other potential sources of error that could be contributing to these unexpected changes that we're seeing, particularly in the lean mass from the DEXA? So that's kind of where it grew from, um, just trying to identify what else it could be or what else we might have to potentially need to standardise um, when assessing body composition with the DEXA in athletes. I think part of it also depends on what you're tracking and what you're going to use the DEXA for. Like, is it, are you, if you're really looking at the lean mass, or if you're going to be looking more at fat mass because you're not that as concerned with, with the lean mass, will also vary how much you need to standardise um, in terms of when you do know in practice or your athlete population that you'll be using with as well so that's sort of where it grew from and then obviously body composition fat free mass fat mass isn't only used just for looking at body composition but also when you're assessing low energy availability or resting metabolic rate as, as well so that could then potentially be needing a source of error to those measures of assessment too so i think it is quite important to understand where those errors potentially are coming from um, and how that would affect your interpretation um, of other measurements sure. and assessments. Sure. I mean, you know, look, this, this is a huge subject. Um, <laughs> so I know, I know one, one thing, that there will be a danger that we'll go down a lot of rabbit warrens rabbit oh, yeah. with this. Um, but before we give the impression that, you know, DEX is a, a terrible device or whatever, which it absolutely isn't, it's like any tool. Yeah. Um, you just need to understand its strengths and weaknesses and the limitations of its use to um, inform, you know, what we find or interpret in research, but also what we do with it in, in practice. That's the reason why I'm doing this, this podcast yeah. is just to inform everyone so that we're all on the same page. Um, so let, it's incredibly unlikely that that the listeners don't really know what we're talking about when we even use the words DEXA. But let's just quickly define what we're talking about. We're talking about a, um, a machine, a gadget, a device, a technique. What, what, what actually is DEXA? Yeah, so DEXA, which stands for Dual X-ray Absorbmetry, um, is an imaging technique. Um, so what it does is it produces two X-ray beams, hence the name Dual, um, and how, and which is how much your body or the different tissues in your body attenuate or reduce the beams um, leads us leads it to detect the different tissues. Um, thus, it allows it to determine bone from non-bone tissue and within areas without bone, fat tissue from other tissue or the rest. However, it is only two x-rays. So whenever you have a part of the body where there's soft tissue overlying the bone, um, it estimates a ratio of what is considered fat mass and what's considered fat-free mass based on the areas around that specific area it's looking at using brand-specific algorithms. And then it uses that to calculate the, the body composition, so the amount of lean mass, fat mass, um, bone mineral content within the whole body. Um, and because those 
algorithms are specific to different manufacturers. It's one of the reasons why you shouldn't be comparing scans uh, made from different from different machines or different manufacturers as well. So if you've got someone who's going to one clinic for a scan and then doing a follow-up scan in another clinic, it's going to be really hard to interpret and compare those results. Um, which yeah. I think very important for people to, to understand. Model numbers and software versions. Yeah, exactly, yeah. all of that. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, okay. Um, and that's actually, we're going to come back to that because I, that's actually a really big issue that I have with this because a lot of people, when they're looking at data from DEXA um, in like a meta-analysis, for example, is they're not necessarily comparing apples to apples. It might be... Uh, well, it might be green apples versus red apples, and yeah. you know. Anyway, we'll get to that. Um, so, there's just one thing that jumped out at me there first was the fact that um, if, if we think if we think from the purpose uh, from from the perspective of you know what was it built for, what was it designed for, what what actually tool, what's the primary purpose of that tool mm. um, would be a, the first thing to get into because it might help us understand. Um, where it's best used and where it's mostly reliable? Well, I suppose initially DEXA was developed for the assessment of bone mineral density and that is what it's considered a gold standard for. Um, And I think because it's gold standard in that assessment, people then assign that to also the assessment of body composition as well. Um, And it does make sense that it's gold standard for bone mineral density because it will always be able to detect bone from the other tissue. So it makes sense that it is gold standard yeah. um, from that. And it was, I think it's just because it also had the ability to differentiate between fat mass and the rest because it does lump your muscle tissue, your gut contents, your organs, your fluid all together under that, that lean mass um, there as well saw it become more popular in research for assessment of body composition and then that's transitioned into to practice and, and sport there as well. Yeah, so, okay. So, I mean, we've made it clear then that, um, it, you know, it really is a, a phenomenal um, device, if you like, for assessing bone density. Yeah. Um, and we do know that it has a great deal of use um, in assessing body composition but the you know the honor of being referred to as gold standard is actually a case of mistaken identity when it comes to body composition but it has been assumed as such i mean you see it everywhere in in the yeah. in every in almost every paper where they talk about <laughs> it, they, they use the phrase gold standard yeah and that is interesting so like according to like ioc work groups so that your gold standard or reference methods are like your cadavers dissection mm. which obviously we can't use in our athletes um and then multi-compartment models where you're trying to measure the indirectly or directly different compartments and then adding them together and all medical imaging with mri or ct so they obviously all have their own limitations the most being expense um and yeah. the labor intensiveness of them um, and I think what else leads to the confusion is that DEXA is an imaging technique there's no denying it it's a lab-based technique um, as well and I think that just adds to the potentially the confusion of why it's also seen as a as a gold standard um, and referred to 
as well in, in other papers, um, to yeah. papers that will try and validate other forms of body composition against yes. Dexter, um as well. And sometimes when I read those, if you know they haven't stipulated if they've actually standardised the presentation of the athletes for the DEXA, then how can you know that what they're actually validating against is right? And this so. is a can of worms, uh, <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm coming back to that can of worms, so I'm going to put that on the table over here and we're coming back to that because that is actually one of the areas I think we should get into. So, yeah, they, look, they, they, there are many different um, testing methods. Mm. You use the word reference methods, and it's quite useful, I think, to differentiate um, the fact that, that we have some reference methods, but, but just because a device or gadget or technique tests or assesses or purports to come up with some idea of body composition, it doesn't make it a reference method. So um, there's that, and you've obviously explained that. Uh, interestingly, with the emergence of MRI and CT, um, mm -hmm. you know, with which in recent times has started to become more available for body composition. For example, in, in my practice next door to me, there is uh, both a DEXA and also an MRI, and the MRI is, um, is available um, for body composition, but heinously expensive. I mean, it's yeah. outrageous cost, but there are people who will, will certainly pay for that. Um, but just quickly, there are other testing methods, you know, obviously, which would include um, skin fold calipers and... Yeah. Um, uh, uh, skin fold has got bod pod or... Yeah. Yeah, displacement, um, all that, like underwater weighing as well, and then obviously um, bioelectrical impedance analysis or spectroscopy. Too has also been used for body composition. Ultrasound, yeah. There, there's some interesting techniques out there. But I'm just referring back to something you just said, which was um, where, you know, um, other higher up, if you like, reference me methods might be compared to the gold standard, quotes and quotes, of, of DEXA, um, which you've rightly explained is, is, is a little bit crazy uh, to do it that way around. Um, but... Um, Skin folds, mm -hmm. um, ultrasound, um, bioimpedance—you know—they—they—they they, they very frequently will be compared against the gold standard of, of DEXA, and this is what I meant by another can of worms: is if we're questioning, you know, the 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 accuracy and reliability, etc., um, of DEXA being worthy of being a gold standard, then that cascades down to thousands of papers that have made that assumption that it is and and therefore as i said the impact on the body of knowledge is mind-blowing um do you have any thoughts about about that yeah as you said it's a big can of worms hmm. um, i think it's I, I suppose i don't have so much an issue if they used uh, um other tools of body composition against DEXA, um, but it depends on if they've actually standardised athlete presentation and try to minimise biological and technical error of the DEXA as well and stating that clearly within within the study. I think if those aspects aren't mentioned, then it's going to be hard to try and justify that it's been validated, I suppose, yeah. that form of assessment of body composition. Um, and as you said, like, we don't want to say that the DEXA is a 
a useless tool or anything. It's not. Um, but it's about understanding its, its limitations and then how that's going to affect those um, other studies that have used it as a comparison. Absolutely. Um, and I think for me, particularly when I put my practitioner hat on, it's more of a question of, well, what, what actually... Why actually can we be confident to learn from these techniques? Mm -hmm. So rather than use the word body composition loosely, because that can be interpreted to mean anything from, you know, an assessment of, of different compartments and, and yeah. so on, to, you know, on the sort of the more ground level, you know, in gyms and so on, really what they're looking at is a percentage body fat number. Yeah. Um, Whereas, and I've discussed this before, you know, there are other ways of establishing a baseline um, and then um, assessing progress from that baseline without having to refer to things like percentages or grams or whatever of fat, you know, for example, like some of skin folds. Yeah. Um, where obviously technique then becomes an issue and you know the condition of your calipers and you know the, the the way in which you grasp the skin for all the things that they teach you to try and control in the Isaac methodology for example but which most people don't do that um, I mean we do obviously like in you know uh, in, in, in more elite sporting environments that's pretty much the only way you're allowed to, to you know to assess athletes um, but Going from that mindset, going back then to the DEXA, because we're really talking about how this is used as a tool to assess body composition, um, in some of the papers that I've looked at and read that, that, that um, you've provided me on this topic, you do, you, there's a lot of work there about that's delving into reliability mm -hmm. um, aspects and standardization i think we should start going into that a bit because i think you know if, if we're going to use this as a tool then these are the areas that we need to be considering in more detail so um uh, you know it, it's a, you can choose which which area we go down first i guess but um those are the things that i wanted to, to touch on at this point yeah, I suppose the it, to start with in terms of standardization the first thing to look at was Obviously, as athletes, they train and they eat, as does everyone. Um, so what the effects of, you know, those daily activities, food and fluid intake, if they have any effect to start with, um, I think that was like the beginning question. Um, yeah. And then if it's going to then affect how you monitor um, body composition or changes in fat mass or lean mass over time if you're using DEXA as well. So that's were the first sort of reliability studies we're sort of looking, we're looking at uh, the effect of food and fluid intake um, and also exercise on those different compartments um, as assessed by the DEXA there as well. And so it was sort of from what we know, we can see that uh, bone mineral content and fat mass appear to, to not that, be affected that much, so like kind of trivial changes with regards to previous food or fluid intake um, and also previous exercise as well, although I think there was some potentially small but substantial effects on fat mass in terms of arm mass um, and arm lean mass, um, fat mass there as well, um, and similar with the effect of the exercise as well, uh, where it does seem to have a bit of an effect or is on that lean mass 
measure. Um, and that's, as I said before, because your lean mass isn't just your muscle, it's also your organs, your gut contents, um, fluid as well. It all comes up as lean mass on the DEXA. So it does make sense that if you've just eaten something, if you just drank, or if you've done exercise and there's recap, um, distribution of fluid around your body, that's probably going to show up as, as lean mass um, within the DEXA there as well. So that's where it sort of started in terms of the, the standardisation and however when the um, athletes could appear fasted um, and rested, so no food or thought intake prior to the scans and earlier in the mornings, uh, those errors were were reduced in terms of the biological variations. So that's sort of when the protocol was set up, particularly at the AIS, where the athletes were scanned in the morning before any training sessions, um, fasted and, and rested there as well. So, uh, and that I, I, that's important because also that helps us differentiate how we might look at it um, when we're using it in research, where we have a fair amount of control um, on the subjects, you know, the ability to prepare them and get them all ready, you know, whereas in, in practice, that is a more complicated scenario, particularly in elite sport where, you know, you're lucky to get an athlete, you know, for these things, let alone um, tell them they can't train or they can't eat, you know, it, 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 that has implications for the bigger picture, which, you know, the coaches or the athlete themselves might consider to be more important than what we're doing. So still being able to use these tools in different settings, um, it, you know, is, I guess, where there might be some advantages for DEXA mm -hmm. um, over some other techniques, like I'm thinking bioimpedance, for example, which is heavily influenced by things like food, fluid, exercise you have to lie down for a period of time blah 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 so um that that, that therefore becomes a win for for dexa of course because it minimizes some of the some of the problems obviously um so the reason why i wanted to get into that was also because we we do we do need to talk about um how dexa actually looks at body composition um, and how it's used to do that, um, which brings us back to the point that it is not directly assessing, it is, um, it is providing information that is used to feed into um, you know, an algorithm, if you like, a formula, a piece of software that then makes assumptions. So of course, brings us back to the point that this is, this is at best still an estimate. Um, um, so could, could you just tell us a bit more about that and where your concerns are with, with the fact that, that that is actually potentially a problem? Yeah, good question. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a bit broad. So if I bring it back to, you know, look, there's a lot of stuff that this, this machine, this device is, yeah. is, is, is finding out. And, um, you know, that information is then being used to formulate a picture, an idea of what someone's body looks like and is made, made up of, right? Mm -hmm. But that process is in itself extremely complex because all those different things potentially will influence how 
how that that information is translated and and you know um, so that's the sort of the area that I think we should we should unpack a little bit and you know you can help us see just how complex that process is yeah as I said it is very complex and that's because our body is made up of many different compartments um, and factors so I think because it is an imaging technique it is considered to be a direct measure actually even though it's there is an estimation there, particularly with that soft tissue and when it over, overlies um, the bone in terms of trying to determine that part or that area of, of body composition within those regions. Um, and it is sort of that multi-compartment model as well. So it is not, at least not just fat mass, fat-free mass, you are separating out the bone mineral content um, in there as well. But I think definitely the effect of that lean mass and the fact that fluid's obviously such a big compartment of our, of our lean mass um, as well, but then also the effect of what's also happening at the muscle levels as well in terms of, you know, your glycogen concentration, glycogen storage too, um, and the fluid associated with that could also be having an impact there as well. So I think at its most basic, it's relatively easy to understand and you get a you know the reports you get a, you might be aware you get a pretty picture and labels out the information quite nicely and you can differentiate between the left and the right side and arms and legs and I think all of that seems to add weight to it yes it's a gold standard because it gives us all this type of information um, but still needing to recognize all right but what could be affecting what could be causing these dexa artifacts that could be influencing these results and is it going to affect what I'm using it for as a practitioner? You know, if you were only using it really because you know you've got an athlete that needs to lose quite a significant amount of, say, fat mass, do I really need to tell them they can't eat or can't drink before they come in because I'm not really that concerned with the, the lean mass aspect side of it if you're more looking at, at that fat mass part of it? Or is it, no, I've got an athlete who's trying to build going through hypertrophy phase, you know, it's really important to see if they've gained that muscle mass, um, then it would be really important to, to control for the food and fluid and prior exercise, but also using it in conjunction with other measures as well. So how are they going with their strength training? How is it going in the gym? I think it's important not to always just use the DEXA or body composition assessments, whether it's skin folds or um, biological impedance and isolation as well, because it is part of that bigger picture that's feeding into how the athlete is training um, and what that training program or the, um, is meant to be doing in that part of their cycle, of the training cycle as well. Absolutely, yeah. I, actually, I, I devoted an entire chapter of my thesis all about um, the importance of triangulation of, uh, of, of evidence Mm. Um, to increase the you know the level of confidence that we can have in that information and um, body composition happened to be the, the thing that I used as an example so just as you said you know I, I would do uh, say DEXA multi-channel bioimpedance and Isaac and yeah. looking at them um, uh, to be you know to have more confidence in, 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 in what I'm seeing particularly in a baseline assessment where I'm looking to decide what this information means and what I need to do about it in terms yeah. of providing, you know, how does it inform my recommendations? Um, in, and in a, in a different context, you know, we might 
triangulate, um, um, you know, for hydration, we might look at um, thirst, urine-specific gravity, you know, weighing before and after exercise, that sort of thing. That combination gives you more reliable um, understanding of where where we're at. Um, uh, so in practice, a particularly important need for a tool like this um, is, is less, I think, is less about having the ultra accurate understanding of, you know, to, to the milligram, how much body fat and muscle this person has. But it's the longitudinal monitoring capability of that tool where we can, can use it as that, that, that measurement tool to actually understand where are we going with our, our, our interventions and our recommendations, you know, rehab of, you know, lost muscle mass or, you know, whatever it is. And, and that is um, one of the areas that you spent some time on, um, I know, um, is looking specifically at the reliability of um, positioning protocols, for example. Yeah. Um, and I, I found that interesting. I mean, I, I have, uh, I worked for quite a few years in professional rugby club settings, and we, we would have um, the opportunity to get some of our players, um, you know, on a deck. So either a big truck would come in, mobile decks, or we would go to a nearby university. Some of those guys were a lot bigger than <laughs> the decks, yeah. um, which then brings us to another issue, which I, you've also written about um, in your work, where um, you know they, they will actually stitch together bits of information. Um, but going back to its use in longitudinal monitoring, which is obviously vital to both research and practice. What, what you know? What are the aspects to that that are worthy um, for us to know? Um, and, and your sort of concerns about that? Um, I think just to start with, it was actually Lisa Nano who did the broad and tall athletes. Um, sure. Okay. Yeah. Program, yeah. It wasn't me. I'd love to say credit for it. Um, but with the longitudinal monitoring, I think through doing my research, the one thing I took out of it the most was you've got to speak to your athletes and know what's happening with them. Um, you've got to know, you know, if they've had any major changes in their diet, you know, if they suddenly decide to go low carb, high fat, does it mean it's going to affect the muscle glycogen, which could then potentially affect the lean muscle contents, it might look like they've lost lean muscle and that would you know, be raising concerns and, and potentially red flags yeah. um, for coaches and strength. Using a lot of anxiety. Yeah, <laughs> but really it's just because they've, they've yeah. completely changed their diet or they've been on creatine and then they've gone off creatine perhaps is another thing as well. So it's really important um, to get that information about their diet, if they've had any changes, if they've had any changes um, for the supplement intake to help you build that picture when interpreting those longitudinal monitoring as well. And same thing, you know, asking them, um, all right, the last time you had a DEXA scan, was it also after a training day or did you have a rest day? Because um, from one of our studies, we showed that with doing um, some either glycogen loading, so 48 hours of um, high carbohydrate intake or doing some glycogen depleting exercise, again, affects that, that, that lean mass um, estimate by the DEXA there as well. So whether you're doing it face-to-face -face or if it's getting them to fill in a questionnaire online or, or a form or something, just gathering that information from your, from your athletes is really important with that long-term monitoring, not just sending them on to a scan without kind of 
any information and then you get these results and someone's as then as a practitioner you know you've got a coach asking you why have they lost lean mass or you know why have they stayed the same um and you can't answer the question it's harder to be able to provide an answer because you're not sure if it could be because um they've had changes in, in their diet or it's because maybe there's some other factors that are going on or because they just haven't been compliant with the training program which is highly possible of course yeah. <laughs> um uh actually i there's something i wanted to raise um because there are some gray areas in that and um and by that i mean you know what is what is what's the sort of margin of error going to be what, what at what point you know, how, when does it become a meaningful change or a meaningful issue? Because, again, what people will do is they will, they will look at that very nice printout that comes from a DEXA scan. Yeah. And it's very easy to look at that information, that nice picture of, you know, the skeleton or the, you know, the shaded areas to show you how, how much or how little fat someone's got and muscle and so on. And you've got all that text and numbers and it all looks very precise, which obviously we've started to... To question, but as those numbers go up and down, um, you know, in the same way that with say a skin fold, you know, one millimeter is not really going to mean it. That could just be, you know, the difference between a set of calipers or something. With with with, with yeah. particularly when you're talking about lean changes in lean mass, and um, you know, going on or off creatine or glycogen and so on, there's going to be changes. What, I mean, what are we talking about, though, here? I mean, what, what, you know, what, in reality, what are we likely to see? You know, we, is this kilograms of muscle, you know, um, uh, grams? Like, you know, what sort of ballpark are we at with this? Yeah, so uh, we did a study looking at the effect of so glycogen depletion exercise uh, and then the effect of carbohydrate loading with or without um, creatine loading at the same time. And what we saw in terms of the changes with regards to the lean mass um, was that particularly with the, the carbohydrate, excuse me, uh, the carbohydrate loading, um, mm. we saw increases of 2.1%. Um, and then when you added the creatine loading on top of that, it was up to 3%. So if you transfer this to kilojoule or kilogram amount, sorry, um, that's between 1.2 to 2.5 kilogram difference and lean mass, depending on the weight of your athletes, which is, which is, I would definitely consider substantial. Yes, not insignificant. So that's important from an interpretation perspective because yeah. it, it isn't necessarily, as you've obviously made clear, but I just want to make this absolutely clear, is when you're looking at even, even, even with the muscle mass, if it's an increase or decrease of, you know, a, a kilogram, even two kilograms, that could still be explained by those other factors that you've just explained. Potentially, um, yeah. So presumably then we also shouldn't be looking to um, read into this too much if the, if the assessments are performed um, too close to each other in terms of timings. Um, you know, like... A, on a weekly basis or a monthly, you know, to help us determine the likelihood that those changes are, say, more likely to be lean muscle mass as opposed to those other factors. What, what sort of time span should we be adding into this? Oh, that's a good it question. Means, right? <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, well, it's the same with, like, I suppose, when you're assessing, um, like, 
body fat and skin folds as well. So it's like how often or what's the length of time. I yes. suppose you're specifically looking, say, at someone to gain mass, uh, you know, to say, or losing body mass, you know, you aim for half a kilo weight loss or weight gain a week to make it substantial, make sure that it can be main- maintained. So you definitely wouldn't be doing it within a week or two weeks because you wouldn't expect to see a meaningful sure. change or result. Um, yeah. I think, you know, probably maybe a month. But then again, if you've got a weight category athlete who's trying to make weight for a sport, we probably are going to see changes, more rapid changes. Yeah. Uh, but I, did, I reckon like within my own practice, uh, if I could do it, it would be like not even every two months just because of the radiation factor with the, the deficit um, as well, but maybe every three months. Um, but then if you're targeting a specific intervention, yeah that's going to be over six weeks and you would probably do it before and after. And, and of course, this is an argument for the um, integration of other techniques, isn't it? Well, so, yeah. Um, which is how I would do that. And also that would help, I find that that helps me interpret those follow-up DEXA reports a little bit more accurately because I've got some regular, you know, Isaac and other information to include, as you said, you know, feedback from, from example, their strength training. You know, um, if, if we're reading that DEXA and it says, I'm down, I've lost two kilos of muscle mass, but they're bigger, faster, stronger, so to speak. Yeah. And then maybe that might help you reinterpret that a different way. But I, you know, d- this all just makes me wonder how, how many people are thinking this way when they're doing all those research studies and all those papers, you know, uh, particularly, when all they've done is a six-week protocol. <laughs> Crazy. Um, right, so, so let, let's, let's delve back into um, um, some of where I was going. We talked about lean, lean mass, um, but what about fat mass? You know, there's obviously, we're looking, we're hoping to see variations in, yeah. in fat mass over time, and you've described some of the things that might affect um, um, you know, errors in, in uh, you know, false positives, if you like, in, in what we're seeing with, with the lean mass. What about fat mass? Is there anything there that we should be bearing in mind, particularly with the longitudinal monitoring side of things? It does seem to be a bit more robust, I suppose, is one way to describe it, the fat mass um, yep. measures. A lot of the time with the previous research, the changes have been considered to be trivial, um, and not that, but potentially substantial. So it doesn't appear to have, you don't have to be as strict perhaps with, yeah. with the fat mass. You can have a bit more confidence in terms of if they've had, had a major, those factors that would influence that, the lean mass with regards to, I suppose, hydration um, and, and fluid intake and food might not have as, as huge an impact. Obviously, if someone is very dehydrated, um, that's worth having some form of effect on, on the fat mass yeah. as well, but definitely not to the extent um, of, of, the lean, of the lean mass and then overall body mass as well. So, um, but we'll, the, talk, we'll talk about how to control that at the end of this podcast. We'll, we'll, we'll get yeah. into that just so everyone's got a thorough understanding yeah. of how to get the best out of, out of this. So I guess where I'm, I'm coming from is, Look, we know it's quote unquote gold standard for bone, mm-hmm. you know, assessing 
you know, what's going on with, with bone mass. You, you know, we know that it's, um, it, it, it's informative for lean mass, but there are issues, particularly when we're only looking at, you know, a, cup, you know, a, a, a kilogram or two. Um, there, are, there are other factors that might complicate, you know, the, the findings there. Um, and, and we've now come back to, to fat mass and said, well, there, there's less issues there that are likely to yeah. play that. So, so what I'm trying. So my question to you then is, do we do we have more confidence in what we're seeing in a DEXA for body fat than we do for lean mass, or are they equal? Or how should we look at that? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, with regards to yeah, whole body fat mass. I suppose you've more confidence if the standardization hasn't been as ideal yep. to the, the lean mass with interpreting those changes over time. And as you said before, you can then back them up if you're also using other measures to, to monitor in between, for instance, with the Isaac skin folds, um, things like that as well. I think if you're starting to look more at the different regions, so obviously with the Dex, you've got the whole body, arms, legs, Trunk, um, then just it, there could be some substantial areas with the fat mass if you're starting to look particularly at the arms or the or the trunk potentially yeah. as well if you're going more specific or or, or deeper I suppose in, in that regard so then you would want to standardise a bit more but yeah I would say from my reading of the literature and my own experience that the fat mass is a bit more robust um, with regards to what it could potentially affect it, or it's not affected as, as, as much. Um, so you could have a bit more confidence, you know, they've had to have an afternoon scan because, you know, it's the only time being able to fit in. Yeah. Um, or something like that as well. Yeah, so what, so, so summarizing what, I, what yeah. we get from that essentially is, you know, as a practitioner and as a researcher, I, I, should, I, should, put, I should put more confidence in the in the in the total sort of estimates there of total body fat total lean mass and um and the uh, segmental analysis um and the visceral um fat assessment is it is, is still you know i mean it's all accurate just yeah by accurate doesn't it but, but it's more reliable i suppose yeah yeah. Um, I'm, I'm doing. I've got another podcast lined up where we're going to talk about some of these other methods. Um, for example, I'm going to do a big one all about bioimpedance because uh, that's quite an interesting topic. Oh yeah. Um, and of course, you know, one question in that conversation is, uh, you know, how do we determine segmental, you know, um, values when it's not actually specifically, if, to get really basic, beaming through those specific areas? Yes, you've got the illusion of a a thing attached to each limb, but it's not necessarily pulsing, you know, energy or X-rays through specific yeah, that's areas. areas. But with but with DEXA, that is that is a more reliable process, isn't it? Which is why we we are more more confident um, because of the way the the way the DEXA does that. In fact, maybe you could just quickly explain how how that actually that process works and then and then we'll come to the stitching together bit <laughs> uh, yeah so with the dexas there's actually different kinds so different manufacturers um so you have like your fan 
beam um, dixes, dixes, sorry. So the lunar ones, they go kind of transverse. So they'll go from like side to side and move their way down across the body where the hologic, they'll move up and down um, the body as well. So in terms of the X-rays being produced underneath, so you're actually lying down on the bed and the, uh, the X-rays underneath you um, and the detectors above you. Um, and so how the, the X-rays are then detected as they go are being beamed through your body um, differs between different um, manufacturers as well, which is also why you can't compare results too much between um, different manufacturers too. So with the, it does, as you go, it goes through, so that's how you get that image, but it is also just a 2D image um, as well, which is, I think, something... To consider and you can't really particularly around like the legs um, and the trunk you can't differentiate what's the glutes or what's the thigh um, and things like that with yeah. a, a dexa just because of the way you are positioned um, lying supine flat on a bed uh, like that as well um, and so then the x-rays are beams are detected the attenuation how much they've reduced um, by the detector above you and that's things the pixels are sent through to the computer and the algorithm, I suppose, puts it all together to produce that image and yeah. those um, the results and the gram amounts. Great. Okay, and we're going to come back to algorithms and stuff in a minute. But the um, I referred earlier about my own experience of having you know large. Or we should refer to them as giant rugby players because they're yeah. becoming more giant as the years go by. Either that, or I'm getting really small, which I don't. Know. <laughs> Um, and, um, and, and the, the, you know, the, 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 the saving scenario there is yes, but we can stitch, you know, bits of the, uh, uh, you know, re different assessments together to try and, you know, try and still get an assessment of, of this player. What, I mean, what's happening there and are there any concerns with that? I mean, how um. do you... You know what's actually what? What are they doing? If 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 someone's too big, do they yeah. just get sent home, or you know what what, what happens? Uh, I can't speak for other centres. Um, I just know from my experience that the the AIS is we would actually do two scans, so like for athletes that were too broad, um, so do a left, get as much as the left side as we could on the bed, and then scan them again, and do as much as the right side as we could, and then manually add the values for the left side right. uh, and the right side to, to give us that body composition um, assessment. So I suppose some of the concerns with that is that it is two measures, so like increasing the chances of the error. It's also double the radiation exposure every time those um, athletes come in um, as well. But... Some DEXs will kind of like, if they're outside the scanning area, estimate one side based on the other, um, but it just reproduces the results. So if it thinks, you know, you've got 400 grams of lean mass on your arm on your right side, it'll just say it's 400 grams on your left, left side as well. So I suppose at least if you're doing the two scanned, there is a difference between the two sides. You're more likely to see that um, doing it that way. Sure particularly if you like had an effort, you might have had an ACL injury or something and you know you can visibly see that there's been some, some atrophy. You don't 
want it to say that it's the same on both sides using the, the mechanism that's already in the DEXA there as well. Um, in terms of with the, the lunar prodigy, the lunar IDEXA, when we have athletes that are too tall, uh, again, can't speak for other centres, but with, I was at AIS, what we would tend to do is make sure their feet were in um, and chop off just the top part of, of their head per se. Um, and I think this is because when they try to just scan the head and then stop the dexa and stitch it and scan the rest of the body, um, it really increased the error in the measurement. And it's probably because they need the whole body, not just the head with the, the algorithms that they use to try and calculate that, that body composition there as well. So that's how we would kind of manage it. And then if you had like your locks, so the athletes who were too tall and, and too broad, it would be headless scan on left and right and manually adding up, you know, right arm, right, sure. right truck. Um, and then you'd have more of a, a relative body composition because you're not obviously, you don't have, have the head. Um, but then we're also making the assumption that most changes in body composition aren't going to occur or like they're going to be minimal. Yeah. In the head as well. So, so not perfect. No. So it makes me wonder then, I mean, you know, between sports like, particularly sports like rugby, American football, um, uh, I mean, there's so many sports out there, um, where they are, even for research, particularly in the States where, you know, they've got college college football, college American football, we'll call it, um, is a pretty big thing. Uh, they might have access to some of these technologies. You, you know, makes you wonder then, well, are, you know, are they um, maybe only testing the, the people, the subjects that fit? Yeah. Um, and therefore that isn't truly a representative sample of, of the team, um, all the various positions, et cetera, that exist, which then leads me to wonder, you know, wh where we're going with that as well. Um, but I could probably just park that over there. And <laughs> we yeah, well, I suppose if it becomes more popular within sporting teams as, as it is, that, you know, the manufacturers might see a market there to produce a bigger, yeah. taller, wider deck so that can, can hold your yeah. six foot, three, six foot four yeah. athletes. Um, we'll wait and see. <laughs> yeah, well, anyway, it's just an interesting area, isn't it? I mean, look, I mean, face it, we're, we're still in very early days on all of this from a, a research and and so on. And and again, just to if we if we compare, you know, the, the, I guess the science in. I mean, I, I can ask Craig Sale about this, uh, um, and I haven't yet asked him this specific question. Uh, but for example, if we're talking about how much how much science there is and how much validation there is in using this technique in looking at bone mass, particularly in clinical settings, there's obviously just tons of it. Mm -hmm. But when we're looking at the, the amount of, of evidence in sports science, it's relatively small, isn't it, comparatively to the medical area? I mean, yeah. Um, right, so... Um, let's just quickly... Um, just continue, sorry, um, talking a bit more about sources of error in the use of DEXA. Um, positioning, we've, we've sort of referred to large people, you know, broad and tall, mm -hmm. but 
again, where I see particularly value for this technique is in the longitudinal monitoring issue. What about simply just from one test to another, the simply just lying on there, you know, it's, it's going to be difficult to lie in exactly the same position. What about even just, you know, uh, being a little bit more, you know, twisted or, um, you know, literally, the, you know, the, the positioning of the body, you know, is that something that has any meaningful difference from one scan to the next? Yeah, it, it does. So there have been some papers on this in terms of like the rotation of the arms, uh, yeah. of the feet as well, causing increases in the typical error. Um, we were able to, we had like positioning aids made up to try and minimise that, to try and keep the athletes um, with their feet in the same position, um, and the same with their, their arms and their hands too. Um, and Abaker actually did a comparison between, I suppose, the the protocol that we used to AIS and then the NHANES, where it was just Velcro straps around the ankles and um, the arms just by by the side, um, not held together. Um, and they, she did see that the the area associated with the position aids was slightly less. Um, than with the just using the Velcro straps around the ankles and nothing around the arms. Both are considered reliable. I think that's important to point out. It's just that it's important that if you're going to use one that they can't be interchanged. I think it's important. So like you can't start off using your trying to position your athletes just maybe with the Velcro strap around the ankles, trying to make sure that they're holding it straight and then go, oh no, we're having trouble with this. We'll start using positioning aids now, and not think that that might, and that might not have an effect on on the measures or the estimates sure. of, of the lean mass and the, and the fat mass there as well by the DEXA. Um, is it right? They do find it hard to hold that position sometimes. And as a technician myself, what I would do sometimes with like the broader athletes who might struggle to stay still, particularly with their arms in that position, is once it's past their fingertips, I just tell them to relax. Yeah. Just relax their upper body, just make sure their legs, and I watch them and their legs would stay stay still and let them finish out the scan. So at least that way they're not feeling too uncomfortable for the entire duration of, of the scan. Um, you can do that with the lunar, the Prodigy, because it's transverse. So scans left to right down the body. Don't think you'd be able to do that with the Hologic because that goes up and down. Yeah, so I mean, you know, this is making it quite clear that uh, that you know, once you start comparing, you know, different machines, different models, different assessors, you know, um, uh, technicians, and so on, we're starting to introduce a lot of of different, you know, uh, factors here yeah. that could vary from test to test. So obviously, we want to try and minimise as much as as that as possible. Um, but what about gender? I mean, we, we've talked about a lot of things here, but I mean, is, you know, is being male or female, and in particular the females, you know, where they're at in their menstrual cycle, is this something that we should be thinking about? Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, as, a way, to be, as far as I know, there hasn't been a lot of research or any in terms of DEXA reliability at different phases of the menstrual cycle. It would be a fascinating study. It would. Yeah. Um, for someone listening, one of my MSc students. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
possibly pairing that also with um, bioelectrical impedance as well, because obviously it's fluid shifts a lot of the time contributed to the, the change in, in body mass that females report um, across the menstrual cycle as well. So I think it's something to be considered. Again, it's one of those questions that you would need to ask yeah. before they have their scan. Um, with a, um, and it's maybe a good opportunity to pick up if, whether or not they actually are having a regular menstrual cycle. Yeah. Um, but that would be more well, lean mass this would affect as opposed to fat mass as far as the DEX is concerned or, or, or is this... Actually, yeah, the, the lean mass. Um, although I was at recently a, a female athlete health workshop where they said that the changes in body mass across the menstrual cycle can be attributed not only to fluid but maybe sometimes to increases in fat um, deposit and storage as well. Yeah. So, yeah, um, it could also potentially affect that too. So, all right. So, look, there's a lot. I mean... The, Again, we're really delving into something which we could spend hours on. Obviously, you, you, you know, you've spent a long, a lot of years into this. So, we're, you know, in this hour or so, we're not going to get it all. Um, but hopefully, I'm, we're adding to this, um, you know, a bit more, maybe a lot more questions and answers. Obviously, um, but I, I've referred several times to algorithms, um, and, and you have alluded to the fact that different. Brands, different models will will operate in different ways, but ultimately, what's happening here is this is all providing information, data that that goes into an algorithm. I mean, what what's happening there? Um, and and I guess that's an impossible question to answer because they don't tell us, do they? But but what's going on there? What what you know? How's this working? As you said, it's like a bit of a black box. It's all proprietary algorithms so you don't actually get to see what's been detected like that raw data what's been actually detected um, you only see the end result of it once it, it's gone through that algorithm um, and there are definitely changes or differences between different manufacturers even different versions of the software um, as well, you, particularly in, in the fat mass. Um, I mean, this is a Coca-Cola, Pepsi sort of scenario, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> it's a real closely guarded secret. I can't help but think that that's worrying in terms of us being able to truly understand what's going on here. I guess we, you know, I don't know if we'll ever get a peek inside of the black box. I don't know. We've asked. <laughs> I remember we tried to ask to see if they would, they would let us. Um, but they didn't, so <laughs> it is just, I suppose, having to take it on a bit of faith, but also, again, like, if you consistently, if you're using the same machine, then, again, you can have confidence in those, what you're seeing, longitudinal monitoring over time. Um, it really is only going to be an issue if they're chopping and changing between different clinics who use different DEXs, or if you do change DEXs within your own practice. Um, sure as well um, and in that case ideally you do like a, a comparison between the two so scan the same group of people on the one dex and ideally immediately again on, on the other to try and form your own sort of regression equation so that you can continue to, to do that long-term monitoring so Julia we Look, we've been talking for an hour already about this, which is mind-boggling, and there's, I've got a whole list of things I wanted to get into, but um, I, I think you know, maybe that's another conversation for another day yeah. I'd love to get into with you. But let's try and 
sum up a few things because we we've sort of gone left and right and up and down on a few areas which is the way my brain works i'm afraid um but but maybe a few take-home messages before we end with um how to get you know the most confidence out of these techniques um so so firstly is it gold plated is it gold standard like where are we with this i think it's clear but yeah, so in my the ECNR presentation, I said that decks are, it's good, but it's not gold. So I think you have to be aware of the different limitations, um, but it can be reliable with that standardization. Um, how strict you standardize will depend on what it is you're focusing on yeah. in terms of intervention, um, and maybe also your athlete population as well, you know, you do have world-class athletes. If you are looking for marginal gains, then you are going to have to be stricter compared potentially to athletes who have just stepped up to the that elite level where you would expect to see greater changes with good training and good, good nutrition um, there as well. And I think, yeah, asking the questions and knowing your, your athletes too. So I think at minimum, ideally, fasted, rested in the mornings. I know there can be logistical issues with that, particularly if you're relying on other clinics to do the scans and they only open at 9 or 9.30. Yeah. Um, um, things like that as well. Um, but from a longitudinal monitoring perspective, yeah. is, it, is it same time of, should they aim to reproduce everything that was done before or is that maybe because practically that's almost impossible isn't it yeah so i think you can definitely be a bit flexible with the time as long as they're fasted kind of rested ideally if they've had a rest date the last time you try and schedule after a rest day again at the most make a note that there's been a difference in the training the the, the day before sure. again to help assess help you assess that whether they're with the interpretation of the results um, there as well. And where they're at in their menstrual cycle for the female? Yeah, where they're at in their menstrual cycle, um, asking them if they've had any specific changes to their diet as well. I think particularly um, going low carb, yeah. high fat would be one. Um, low, low carb, high fat's also relatively low residue as well. So the fiber, the fiber in the gut um, as well, asking them if they've had started taking any creatine or even beta alanine, you know, it actually changes the concentration of solutes in the cell as well. Um, I think, and that's probably more when you are going more that the, the, the marginal gains, I think, where you have to be that detailed in terms of what you're looking at, I think, um, with regards to supplementation and what, what they're taking there, but definitely, yeah, the menstrual cycle, uh, any major changes in macronutrient intake, ideally fasted and, um, and, and rested and following the similar training day after Sure. Uh, and so I guess, as we've discussed, probably the bigger no-nos are going to be, you know, comparing to other models. Yeah. Um, and as I, I discussed earlier, even if possible, try and stay with the same um, um, uh, uh, you know, things like firmware models and uh, yeah. software models. I know it's a bit difficult, but you know, but definitely models um, um, is obviously an, an obvious one there, which isn't necessarily done in all those big meta analyses and blah, 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 blah. 
Yeah, and like in some instances, so we actually went through a change in firmware models and stuff, and you could reanalyze the scans with the updated software. So sometimes it is just about drawing a line in the sand, being like, all right, this is what you were, but now this is yeah. what it is. <laughs> um, but and explaining that to your athletes and your coaches um, there as well. But yeah, definitely same, um, same DEXA. Ideally, the same technician, but again, that's logistically staffing, human resources yeah. there as well. Um, and in terms of the athlete, how they present themselves. Brilliant. Yeah. So, look, there's a lot we've got into. My, I, I think we've achieved my ultimate goal, which was largely to focus on raising the awareness of the limitations mm-hmm. um, and, and that it is actually a useful tool to have in one's toolbox. We yeah. just need to be aware of those strengths and weaknesses as, as we've gone into great detail. And I really recommend that there's, um, there's a lot of papers that you've uh, written, co-authored, um, and or some of your colleagues have produced, and I'll link to um, the main ones that I think are, are relevant here because they're all really great reading and I think they will be of great value to practitioners and researchers alike. Um, I'm very grateful for for your time and contributions on this. Just finally, if if people want to um, follow your work, um, I don't know if you're you're much of a social media type person or on ResearchGate or whatever. How how do people access you and your Uh, I am on Twitter. I I don't know how, but I was able to get a Twitter handle that is just my name, Julia (laughs) Bone. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so that's great. We'll tweet you. Uh, very, very nice and easy um, there as well. So, yes, yeah, so I'm on Twitter. Um, so that's probably where I'd be most active in social media. I am on LinkedIn as well. Um, great. Active. And are you, are you, are you on uh, ResearchGate? Um, yes, I believe so. Yeah, well, yeah. you get, yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. Well, anyway, I'll, I'll link to the appropriate Google Scholar, etc. Thank you, Julia. Um, it has been great. And um, I, of course, am Laurent Bannock, and I'm looking forward to bringing back another episode to you all very soon. Um, go to guruperformance.com to check out all our previous episodes and all the other educational activities that my colleagues and I get up to um, in the realms of uh, sport and exercise nutrition. <laughs>